0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by David Miliband. We're sitting on a sofa somewhere in London, and we're going to talk to David about his new book, which is called Rescue, Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time. It's based on a TED Talk, but there's a lot more in it than in the original talk. And we are going to talk about that crisis and the crisis of politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. David, can we start with, I guess, what's the tension at the heart of the book, which is between the politics of immigration, which is having a pretty profound effect on Western democracies, and the refugee crisis. They're clearly not the same, but they intersect in all sorts of ways. How do you pull them apart? Before we put them back together again, how do you pull them apart? The refugee crisis is distinct in what ways?
1: I think it's really important to recognise that the politics of let's call it migration, and the politics of refugees are intertwined in very dangerous ways. The policy agenda needs to be distinct because the rights of refugees and the responsibilities of states towards them are completely different than the rights of immigrants and the responsibilities of states towards them. Obviously, the key thing to understand is that a refugee is someone who can't safely be sent home. That was established in the 1951 Refugee Convention, which I was struck to find when I took up my job at the International Rescue Committee that that was originally only for Europeans, the 1951 convention. It was then extended to be a global set of rights in 1967, and it has that famous phrase, a well-founded fear of persecution according to grounds of politics or religion or ethnicity. And obviously in the modern world, the politics of migration and the politics of refugees are confused by two things – One is that some people leave for both political and economic reasons. People are fleeing from dreadful conditions in sub-Saharan Africa or in some cases in the Middle East for reasons that allow people to call them mixed migration. But the second reason they're being confused is that to a host community, a refugee or an immigrant can look the same. And in popular discourse, they can seem the same we actually had experience of this in the UK in the 90s when we came into government in 1997 the new labor government we had a massive asylum backlog and a massive pressure to reform the immigration system and it was the conflation of the two that caused a lot of political heartache and problem and i see that today in the us where the debate about undocumented immigrants confuses and is conflated with the debate about refugees and obviously in europe as well it's a pressing issue but the point of my book is to say If we allow that confusion to continue, we'll not just compromise the integrity of the refugee system, it will lead to its dilution and eventual elimination.
0: One of the real problems is that, as you say, people in the West sometimes think the refugee crisis is a crisis for us, but the vast bulk of it is happening with people leaving poor countries to other poor countries. And we're a tiny fraction of that, what we take and what we do. And you want people to understand, in a sense, it's not about us. And you also want people to understand it is about us, because We have the capacity to do something about it. And again, that's one of the sort of squaring the circle problems of contemporary politics. It's really hard to achieve. It's not about us. So we're the ones who need to do something about it. Well, that's an interesting way of framing the tension. Of course,
1: if you're in the Middle East or you're in Uganda or Kenya or Ethiopia and you hear people talk about the European refugee crisis, quote unquote, You laugh because – and you laugh at the Europeans because you say, yeah, you had a million people arrive, but you're a continent of 550 million people. We, Uganda, we're a country of 40 million people. Average income is $952 a head, and a million South Sudanese have arrived in the last year. And so they're laughing at us not with pity but with anger because the top 10 refugee-hosting countries in the world – and remember, there are a record number of refugees – at the moment, the top 10 refugee-hosting countries account for only 2.5% of global income. So they are poor or lower-middle-income countries. The reason I say that the refugee crisis is about us, not just them, is that it goes to the heart of how one conceives the role of the quote-unquote West in the modern world. Uh, The role of the West morally, uh, as a place that has wealth and therefore the ability to make a difference for desperate people far away. Morally also as the author's of the post-Second World War conventions that give refugees rights and whether or not we are willing to uphold that history, but also geostrategically, because in an interdependent world, the tension between fixing your problems at home and trying to fix them abroad is obviously very, very real. My argument is that an interconnected world drives you more and more to help solve other people's problems if you want to solve your own. And to put it mildly, that's not just contested, that's an unpopular view people find it much more commonsensical to say, well, hang on, if we can't fix our own problems, how on earth can we fix someone else's? And that's how you get into this position of saying, well, charity doesn't just begin at home, it ends at home. My point is that in a number of spheres, of which the refugee crisis is only one, unless you're willing to act far away, you're not going to be able to act effectively
0: at home either. So in many ways, the most acute version of that is the climate change one, which, as you say in the book, is increasingly driving the refugee crisis. And if we want evidence that climate change is making a difference, the movement of peoples from very poor places to other very poor places is part of that. But we, we come up against the same issue, which is in a way the people who have the capacity to do something about it, and not the people who are feeling the immediate effects at the moment. And you have experience of this in government too. I mean, the climate crisis is in some ways the hardest one for contemporary democracies to get a grip on. I mean, are you, for instance, currently optimistic relative to how you felt in government about our ability to get a grip on this? And we'll leave Trump out of it for now. We'll just treat it as a sort of general problem before the political particulars. Do you think we can really get a grip on that one?
1: Well, I will address your climate point, but I don't actually think it's the most acute one. The most acute example of this tension between the local and the international is a security one, Mm -hmm. uh, which relates to the refugee crisis but isn't all about that. The truth about a connected world is that you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so the weakest airport security system in the world is actually the place that puts the greatest pressure on our own airport security system, given that we're all flying around. And so I think that we might return to this. But the second element of the security challenge, as it exists today, with civilians being targeted, not just combatants, is obviously that... How you prevent radicalization that then turns into global terrorism is an art and not just a science. And that's an, a further inhibitor on the kind of international action that I think is uh, important. So... I do think it's important to recognize that it's the security crisis that is the most acute form of this tension between drawing in your horns and focusing on the home front and going global. In respect of climate, I was Secretary of State for the Environment when, in the halcyon days, really, in 2006-7, uh, Tony Blair appointed me Secretary of State for the Environment in 2006. And he said, we've got to put ourselves at the international forefront of this drive. We got to, We had the idea of appointing Nicholas Stern to do the report on the economics of the environment. No one before had ever mapped out Relative costs of tackling climate change versus living with it, and we passed what now seems like an extraordinary law with cross-party support that would bind forty years of future parliaments to climate change reductions. For we, we it was originally sixty percent, became eighty percent. We created the Committee on Climate Change to oversee it. We created climate budgets for the first time. Now, I was obviously much more optimistic then about the role of the Western world in leading the fight against climate change. And at the time, China had still not yet made its decision. India hadn't made its decision. Market forces hadn't driven solar panel prices down to the low level they're at now. But 10, 11 years later, we're in a completely different position. China has made a strategic long-term decision that climate change is a threat to its own stability. And so I'm more optimistic about their leadership... Obviously, I'm much less optimistic about the U.S. You said don't mention Trump, but it's quite, hard not to, it's quite hard to live by that. But I think that what really concerns me is that obviously carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it's there for 100 years. And we've pumped a lot out in the last 10 years. And the Chinese emissions are still rising, but there's at least a prospect of them being curbed. I am not optimistic about us living within the two degrees limit, the 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But that doesn't mean to say that it doesn't happen or that we shouldn't do everything we can to make it happen because the consequences long-term are obviously desperate.
0: So what does it do to your picture then of the world in which these tensions are playing out, that as you say, China on some issues, for instance, climate, is now taking a lead and America is basically withdrawing from that that field of action of international collaboration. What are the knock-on effects of that for thinking about the range of things we've talked about, the refugee crisis, the security crisis and everything else? Is there a fundamental shift here in how we should think about geopolitics?
1: I think there is a fundamental shift in geopolitics. You've discussed this on your program before, I think, but the Xi Jinping speech in January uh, of this year at Davos, combined with almost on the same day the speech of President Trump in his inaugural address made China the status quo power of the multilateral system and America the revisionist power of the multilateral system. And if that isn't a shift in the tectonic plates, then I don't know what is. I am very influenced in thinking about this. If you look across the long terrain, I think people say rightly, look, America has waxed and waned in its engagement with the international system uh, over the last 150 years. That's true. But one thing hasn't really wavered since the 50s, really. And it was encapsulated when JFK wrote an article in Foreign Affairs in January 57. Eisenhower had just won the '56 election. Uh, JFK went to 14 different countries, Indonesia, Israel, uh, around the world, and he identified two major themes. One was independence, decolonization, and the second was interdependence. And I think I'm right in saying you're, you're the professor of politics, not me. You might know better than I. That, I you hope you know better than I. I don't think that notion of global interdependence had been coined before. Uh, JFK then made a very famous speech in 1961 about calling for a declaration of interdependence, not just a declaration of independence in the States. But the heart of his argument was that global cooperation in an interdependent world was a positive sum game. And that is under systematic attack from the Trump administration. That Wall Street Journal article by Gary Cohn and General McMaster that said... The international community is no such thing. It's a global arena for competition between countries, companies, and slightly bizarrely, NGOs, they threw in as well. But that zero-sum view of the global community is not just a rhetorical difference with the Chinese talking about win-win. It's a fundamental difference of philosophy. Now, it doesn't infect Europe in the same way, but I think that China has made a clear and long-term decision that upholding the global system is in its interests, And America is not in that position at the moment. And I think that even if President Trump only turns out to be a four-year presidency, nothing will be the same afterwards. Because once you've withdrawn from the TPP and had four years of the refashioning of the East Asian settlement, that's a different world. Once you've had the questioning of America's role in NATO, things don't revert back. Once the elastic band has been broken, it doesn't go back to to where it was before. And I I think we are at a different point. And what I would argue is that Europeans need to double down on their commitment to the multilateral system. Now is the time to do it, Um, not in some kind of anti-American way, but uh, recognizing, as Mrs. Merkel said, that we've got to do it ourselves and hope that they come back to the system.
0: Do you think there's any plausible way that Britain can play a positive role in that post-Brexit? I mean, is there, you know, obviously there are all sorts of different visions out there what Brexit might mean. It's not inevitable that withdrawing from the European Union means an abandonment of multilateralism. Not in theory anyway, but do you think in practice there's any feasible way that Britain can be a multilateral player outside of the EU?
1: Well, I've described Brexit as an act of unilateral political disarmament. So my view is, is out there. I think the only way that Britain comes back to being a major global player post-Brexit is in the event of a collapse in Europe. The great hope of the Brexiteers, and I, I don't think it's unfair to describe the way Michael Gove and others spoke before the referendum about the future of Europe to say it was a hope that Europe would collapse. Their view was that these regional... Alliances were a thing of the past, that Vietnam was as close a neighbor to us as Germany, that the global village meant that it was the end of geography rather than the end of history. And I have a very different view. I think that the weakness of global governance means actually that the logic is that regional alliances become more important, not less important, regional structures of cooperation. And I think for Britain to deal itself out of the European game, of course we've got a seat on the UN Security Council, but I see that under more pressure. In a post-Brexit world. And one of the reasons I still feel passionately about keeping alive the slim possibility that we might not end up leaving is that the politics as well as the economics are so dangerous and damaging.
0: Last week, we spoke to Jan Werner Muller, and you quote him in your book. He's kind of cornered the market in trying to diagnose populism, but he makes a particular emphasis that the populism on the right, and the kind we see in Europe, and Trump's a version of it, Modi's a version of it, but the European kind is almost the the definitive example, it claims to speak for the people against elites who have somehow allowed foreigners or outsiders to infiltrate democratic politics. And he draws a distinction between that right populism and the versions you might get on the left. And I'm genuinely open on this. I'm not sure. I don't know how far you can hold that distinction. It depends what we mean by populists on the left. But if it's Mélenchon or possibly even some of the people around Corbyn, it doesn't target foreigners in the same way. But it is always looking for outsiders to blame. I think
1: that he says that left-wing populism is dyadic and right-wing populism is triadic. Left-wing populism is about the betrayal of by the elites. Um, right-wing populism says it's the, the villain is the foreigner. The elites have been in league with them. And I think that they are quite different. In a way, the, the left-wing populist attack on Wall Street or on the city of London is that these people have been rent-seeking, but not as part of some global plot. I mean, the Gnomes of Zurich was the uh, allegation of in the 1974 government that uh, uh, had uh, somehow brought them down. I think what's important is to try and recognise two things. One, that globalisation is too unequal, too insecure and too unstable, and it's not being managed well. There's a an mismanagement and an undermanagement of the global commons and of the regional commons in the European space. And we need to recognize that and address it because that is the root cause of the discontent. And by the way, that includes migration and refugee issues. It's been undermanaged and, in some ways, mismanaged. The second thing, though, that gives me pause is that those parts of Europe and America that are most angry about immigration and refugees, it seems from the data, are those with the fewest immigrants and refugees. And that must give you pause about what's really driving the populist revolt. I know that my own former constituency of South Shields in the northeast of England voted 65% for Brexit. It has a Yemeni population, interestingly enough, of about 1,000 who came in the 1890s, Britain's oldest Yemeni population, seafaring. So Yemen, a great seafaring nation, South Shields, a great merchant seaman nation, but... No one suggests that the Brexit vote was an anti-Yemeni vote. It's got a Bangladeshi community, South Shields. I don't think that was part of it. It's got a very small Eastern European population. And so the question for Jan Werner Muller that uh, I'd like to ask him if I ever get a chance to do more than simply communicate communicate by a podcast is how does he explain that those areas that have had the greatest influx of quote-unquote foreigners, that in his terms would be subject to the greatest quote-unquote strain, seem to show the greatest not just resilience but embrace of that. The great urban centres are the economically thriving as well as socially diverse parts of the Western world. And I think it's worth thinking through what that says for the analysis of how right-wing populism has managed to get
0: as far as it has. And part of the answer must be to do that a lot of these places, you see it in the States... Left and right overlap in the sense that there are places where there is an appeal both of left populists and right populists. Bernie did quite well in some of the same places that, that Trump did well. Just to go back to the, well, maybe particularly the British Labour Party, but I'm not just thinking of that. I'm thinking of Mélenchon when he derided Macron for abandoning the socialist movement to become a banker. And he didn't just say he became a banker. He went to work for the Rothschilds. You know, and it's absolutely clear what he's saying when he's saying that. There is that strain of anti-Semitism in some of the new radical populist left. And presumably that plays some of the same function, doesn't it? It's not about immigration. It's not about refugees. For the reasons that the Yemeni story isn't, it's too long ago. But it's got a anti-foreigner strain to it, doesn't it? Well, that
1: is hair-raising, really, and shocking. And... What comes into my head is that your quote about the Rothschilds, which I hadn't heard before from Mellonshaw, remember there was Donald Trump's last advert in the campaign, which had Soros, Blankfein and Janet Yellen. Just by accident, three Jews featured in this with this dark Jaws like music about the global system. I think that you've also got to remember that in the Charleston demonstration about the taking down of the statue of Robert Lee they were chanting jew will not replace us and that was really shocking to me i, I it was a, it, it brought you up short about the extent to which antisemitism is willing to shout its name and its and its credo of hate so look i think one's got to just be very clear that we're living in an age of extremes i mean Hobsbawm's famous book was describing a century that's meant to have gone the short 20th century but this is the age of polarization The economic polarization, I think, is at the heart of this. But one can't just be an economic determinist. It would be stupid to say there's only the economic factors. There are social factors as well, but they're not new. I quote in my book the fact that in 1939, 1940, two-thirds of Americans didn't want any Jews to be allowed into the U.S. So this interplay of politics and policy is real throughout history on the refugee issue. Now, if you don't have good policies, then you can't get the politics right. But having good policies on its own is obviously also not enough to get the
0: politics right. In this age of extremes, why do you think it's mainstream social democratic parties that on the whole are the ones being squeezed? I mean, the vision that you lay out, I hope you're happy with this description. It's got many classic social democratic strands running through it. We'll talk about the Labour Party perhaps in a second and where that fits in. But if you look at Europe in particular, across the continent... In Germany, in Holland, in Spain, in Italy, Renzi's party. Every time there's a a dawn of social democracy, the dawn is quickly followed by some kind of darkness again. Why is social democracy the form of politics that seems to be the victim of this new kind of extremism?
1: My narrative is that both centre-left and centre-right are the victim. My very shorthand way of putting it is that globalisation challenges both centre-left and centre-right, but in different ways. That globalisation has challenged the centre-left's commitment to limit inequality, and that is what has undermined and corroded support for social democrats. That globalisation has challenged the centre-right's claim to be the parties of social order and cultural conservatism, if you like. And the openness of the global system has challenged left and right in different ways, but has a common root, which is that the more open and connected world has been a challenge to centre-right and centre-left. Now, I think the particular syndrome of the centre-left in Europe has something to do not just with economics but with the political systems. The parties that have suffered the most are those who've been junior parties in coalition. I'm thinking of the Social Democrats in Germany. I'm thinking of the Dutch Social Democrats as well. And they've been absolutely killed by being seen to be locked into a economic bargain that has not delivered for their own people. There are additional elements in Germany to do with Heart's reforms and things that you've discussed on your programme before. But it seems to me that, again, I don't want to be an economic reductionist, but until we can radicalise our economic answer, and I don't just mean by that being more Keynesian, it's got to be about how you create wealth, not just how you keep the engine going and not just about how you distribute it better. Until we have a better answer there, especially for the left behinds, we're going to really struggle.
0: Perhaps the exception to that perhaps not is France. I mean, the, the mainstream social democratic party in France, it depends how much you think Macron has recreated any of that. But I mean, they were absolutely wiped out in the presidential election. They, were, but, uh, they, they, were, uh, they, they weren't coalition, but they were in a sense, trapped. I mean, they, I think they came across as people who did not have options. Is that right?
1: I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but I once asked Jacques Delors why he didn't run for the presidency of France. And he looked at me and he said, well, there are only three social democrats in France. And I was one of them, he was he was saying. And so the French socialists have never been a classic social democratic party. Now, it's a very interesting question, but maybe also a very destructive one. It would have been a very destructive one for President Macron. If Manuel Valls had won the nomination in the Socialist Party, the Socialists chose Mr. Henon, who was from the far left, and in a way that helped create the conditions for Macron to burst through and in the end, I suppose, kill both the Socialist Party and the Sarkozy Republican Party. I've now forgotten what your question was. So consumed was I by my uh, story about it, Jack Delors? It,
0: it was. So they weren't a coalition party. Maybe they weren't really committed to social democracy anyway, but the... I know the Eurosceptic version of this would be what trapped the French left was being anchored to the Eurozone. So in a sense, they were coalition partners. The other coalition partner was Germany. People are looking for a national politics where there is freedom of manoeuvre. So coalition partners get punished, but maybe, and this is, I suppose, what the people who think that Brexit is well-timed because Europe is really in trouble, think the trouble lies in that everyone is trapped by a system in which the voters are going to punish them because they cannot behaved with genuine freedom of manoeuvre. Mm-hmm.
1: The the first thing to say is that the Macron tradition is not wholly new. Remember, the deuxième gauche goes back to the 1970s in France, and I think Macron has described himself as a Ricardian. So there's history there. Now, on the question of freedom of manoeuvre, the truth is that, to me, that Europe has been locked in the wrong macro stance. Uh, it's been trapped in a stance of what you could describe as pro-reform but pro-austerity. What Macron represents is a breaking out of that by being pro-reform but also anti-austerity. And his route to the bargain is to say he's going to use the freedom of manoeuvre he has in France to reform France. In return, he thinks, and I think he's right, he's going to get some German help. Now, Germany is not going to break with auto-liberalism completely, but I think that Mrs Merkel recognises the overwhelming need to strengthen Europe, and to strengthen Europe, you've got to get it out of its 1% growth trap. It's got to get to a 2% plus growth situation. And to me, that is a anti-austerity pro-reform position. The tragedy of the Hollande administration in some ways was that it it never broke decisively with an anti-reform, anti-austerity message. In fact, in practical terms, the Hollande administration did do some reforms, but it got the ordering wrong. And I think what Macron's understood is that he has to prove his reforming credentials. He'll then give the excuse that Mrs. Merkel needs to give him some macroeconomic help. And we'll see. But the truth is that the perils of being outside the euro are significant for a country like France, and it doesn't want to take that risk. It's incredible, even in Greece, You know, for all the hell they've been through. And how would Britain or America have coped with, I don't know, 50% youth unemployment or 40% youth unemployment, one-third cuts in public sector wages? And those Greek voters, it always struck me that the, the ultra-left position in Britain, that we should be in favour of Brexit, out of sympathy with the Greeks, the Greeks were never in favour of pulling out. Anyway, this is a long way from my book, and I'm, see, I, I'm sure you want to ask me lots of questions about that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very polite way of
0: putting it. Uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you two questions about that that come out of the book. Two things that you say, in it, and actually something that you said earlier as well, which is when you look back on your time in government, it was the Halcyon days. So it was before when you were minister in charge of... Energy and climate policy as you know a time when things were possible and they're not possible now. So you're you're describing the refugee crisis from the NGO perspective. You travel the world, you see this problem on the ground, and you target very significant amounts of money to trying to deal with it. If you were in government now, rather than in the position you're in now, would you feel less able to to make the difference than in the position you are now? I mean, would you trade it? Would you trade your current ability to do something about this for the power or lack of power you might have in government you certainly
1: have more power in government there's no question about it the obstacles are bigger but the power is much much greater i mean i'm running a 730 million dollar ngo but we have to raise 730 million dollars every year now we've got much better at private sector fundraising we we raise about 180 million dollars of that from the public uh, but we're significantly dependent on decisions by ministers and by governments and by civil servants To support it. So the power in government is much greater, not just in dealing with the symptoms of the refugee crisis, but also diplomacy itself. The reason we've got a global refugee crisis is because we've got a set of civil wars around the world that are not being resolved, and they're not being resolved because we've got a global diplomatic crisis. I mean, I sat through... I live in New York now, and the UN had its annual convention in September. Where were the all-night sessions peacemaking in Yemen, peacemaking in... South Sudan, peacemaking in the Congo, they didn't happen. And one reason I describe the refugee crisis as a trend, not a blip, is that we've got a crisis of diplomacy of a very, very serious kind that speaks in a way to the questions you were asking about Britain's role before. But until we can see a rebirth of peacemaking, peacebuilding and peacekeeping, then the refugee and displacement crisis is going to grow and grow and dealing with the symptoms is going to be the best that we can do. Having said that, I think we can do a miles better job at dealing with the symptoms because the system of humanitarian assistance is still stuck in the past. I mean, the fact that less than 2% of the global humanitarian budget goes on education is not just a pity. It's an absolute scandal and it's an invitation for the devil to make work for idle hands. And that's what you've got across the world where half of all refugees, after all, are, are children.
0: Where's the political leadership going to come from then to do this?
1: Well, interestingly enough, I think that there's a couple of sources. There are plenty of people wanting to make war around the world. But there are also some forces for peacemaking. One set are in Europe. I mean, it is significant that President Macron should be the person who's flown to Saudi Arabia. He's got the prime minister of Lebanon in Paris at the moment. He's right to be worried that Lebanon is the the fifth Middle East war that takes off, if you include Yemen as being part of the Middle East. And so I think that Europe has got the opportunity, if it gets its economic house in order over the next five years, to become a bigger player globally. It can't do it on its on its own. So then you begin to look to, well, where's China going to position itself? Is it going to remain cleaved to Russia in the way that it has been? Or is it going to follow through on Xi Jinping's Congress speech earlier this month or last month to become more of an independent player globally? That then leaves a big question about the U.S., because there is a crisis of diplomacy in the US. 21, I think, of 23 assistant secretary posts in the State Department have not been filled. If you go and meet US diplomats around the world, they'll tell you that they're having to make it up because they don't know what the administration's policy is. And there's a real sense of, of vacuum, and vacuum is destabilizing at the moment. So I don't see big global peacemaking engagement coming from The U.S. So there's a big responsibility on Europe. And to the extent that it impinges on their interests, there'll be a big responsibility on the Chinese. But it's virgin territory for them. This isn't something that they've wanted to put themselves into. And then obviously the joker in the pack is the Russians and how they see their role. Syria is obviously the fulcrum of this. They've created an alternative process to the UN system through the Astana process. And that's unusual, really, because the UN Security Council has been more important to the Russians than to anyone else, really, especially in the last 25 years. Obviously, it was important when it was the Soviet Union. But I'm told that they're worried about how they transition out of an Astana process they control to a UN process that they fear they don't control. They've just vetoed the continued role of the joint implementation mechanism, which monitors human rights abuses in Syria. And so that's why I describe them as the joker in the pack.
0: In the book, you're quite honest and open about some of the challenges you faced in government how hard some of it was we were talking beforehand maybe in contrast to some other political memoirs there's a certain amount of mayor Cooper in there and you have this very memorable line where you say I'm paraphrasing you but you roughly say maybe I was better at government than I was at politics I'm gonna think of lots of people who don't seem to be good at either <laughs> <laughs> including I have to say in the current British government but I mean that's probably true of Hillary Clinton too I think better at government than at politics Do you think contemporary politics is really significantly hostile to people like you or more generally to that kind of mix? Because it does seem harder in a sense for the people who fit that description to get a hearing.
1: I don't think that politics is hostile to people like me, but I think politics is a hostile environment and the hostility knows far fewer bounds. I mean, it's wrong to compare it to the world of international humanitarian law where eight IRC hospitals get bombed uh, last year. I mean, that's of a totally different order. But the rules that applied to politics, including to how, not just how politicians are respected, because that suggests a degree of respect that goes beyond what's appropriate, given that accountability is key to it. But the fact that there are no boundaries in what's alleged or said there are no boundaries in respect of family life and all sorts of other aspects of politics, it means that politics is a very hostile environment. That's not new in some ways because it's always been the case that if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. But I think the toll of politics explains why the half-life of politicians is so much shorter than it used to be. I don't myself think that people who are good at government should be afraid that politics somehow is impossible. I mean, Mrs. Merkel, in a way, is a counter... Example to that, and I always smile when people say, "Oh, you know, the Labour government used to say what counts is what works." And I always think, "Well, it'd be bloody stupid to say what counts is what doesn't work." You've got to be able to do the business. Now, I also say in the book that linking good policy to good politics is a really difficult thing to do in government. Is essential. I give the example of the financial crisis, where one of the things where the Brown administration did, I think, distinguish itself in a positive rather than a negative way, was its response to the financial crisis. But how many people have said to you, you know, the bankers got away with it, when in fact it was people's savings that were at risk? And we didn't, quote-unquote, save the bankers. We actually saved people's savings, or, or Brown, Alistair Darling, etc., The Tim Geithner, who's he's on our board, actually, so I've got to know him in, in the last four years. These are people who saved people's savings. They didn't save
0: bankers. But it shows you the importance of getting that link between good government and good politics. You mentioned Eric Hobsbawm's Age of Extremes. That's the century, the short 20th century, 1914 to 1989. And now we're back in another Age of Extremes. So when you look at your time in government, particularly the Blair government, a kind of period, I think, in world history that kind of runs from the O.J. Simpson trial (laughs) to the financial crisis, you know, that sort of period, late 90s and early 2000s, obviously punctuated by 9-11. But those 10 years... They look to me, and you, you got a better insight than I do on this, certainly, they look more and more like an outlier relative to the broader sweep, these fundamental challenges that you're talking about, these geopolitical challenges, deep questions of policy that really shape people's lives. I don't want to make this question sound too hostile, because it's not intended to be hostile. But was it easier then? Government is never easy. But was that an unusually propitious time to be, as you say in the book, you were for a while, the most successful social democratic party in the world. Was it a particularly propitious time? Do you look back on that and think it is an outlier at that period?
1: I think that it's important to distinguish two or possibly three aspects of that, because it's a very interesting question. I hadn't quite thought about it in those ways. And, of course, Mervyn King talked about the nice decade, non-inflationary continuing expansion decayed. I think two or three things are really important. One, there was almost, it wasn't the disappearance of macroeconomic policy, but the relative benign macroeconomic environment. Uh, Chinese growth and production was driving down inflation, prices were, were low, the oil price jumped around, but it was a relatively placid macroeconomic environment. Secondly, uh, internationally, we were in the post-Cold War period. It wasn't the post-Cold post War, which we're in now. It was the post-Cold War period. And that gave enormous agenda-setting capacity and actually policy-making capacity internationally to uh, the West, really, because the Chinese experiment hadn't yet come to the kind of fruition it was now. Um, The bad actors hadn't got their act together. And so in that sense, it wasn't that the problems were easy, but the environment was one in which there felt like there was a lot of agency and the obstacles to action seemed smaller. The third thing I'd say, though, is that the problems were fumingly complex. How you created a low-carbon economy before the digital age was a very, very challenging question. There were old conflicts still to be solved there. I mean, remember, in that 10-year period, you could actually frame it as being the period from the Northern Ireland peace settlement to the independence of Kosovo. In international relations, there was really tough bits of the jigsaw having to be uh, put together and certainly if you were looking at it from a, an American point of view you would highlight 911 but you'd also highlight financial crises in asia financial crises in, in south america so i think it's a very interesting and i think powerful thought that it was a distinctive period i wouldn't describe it as an easy period i didn't take the question in the least bit in a hostile way but i think that The macroeconomic environment is clearly much more challenging now because the rise of the rest has put that much more pressure on the industrialised economies when combined with technology and all sorts of other changes. And I guess one reflection of mine that maybe brings it together is that part of my narrative is that when I say that globalisation is too unequal, too unstable and too insecure, my diagnosis is that that's in part for an obvious reason, which is that globalisation has been the victim of its failures, failures in the financial crisis, failures in Iraq and Afghanistan. But perhaps more interestingly, it's also been a victim of its successes. Remember, the architects of global integration wanted to see China and India grow. However, the success of that has meant there's been a shift in the relative balance of power. The architects of the global system wanted a more connected world. But that's created this asymmetric situation where a weakness in a security system far away can cause trouble at home. They wanted more open trade. But of course, that's put strains on Western economies. They wanted a technological revolution. They wanted to sponsor people, money and ideas to come together, to sponsor a technological revolution. That's helped disembowel in some ways the middle class. So the global system has been a victim of its successes as well as a victim of its failures. And I think that's an important thing to come to terms with as one tries to think about what does progress mean in
0: the future. Last question, picking up on that. And I know this is an impossible question, but with hindsight given what you say about that time when you were in government, I'm not just talking about you personally, but the government of which you were a part before the financial crisis. Do you have regrets that you weren't thinking more about that this might be an unusual time and that you can't sort of prepare for the worst in that sense, but that there does feel like a certain discontinuity and social democracy and the, the Labour Party at present, you know, its current direction and so on. It feels like there's a big break from that time We'll leave the Iraq war out of it, that's not for this discussion. But do you have regrets that there was not more thinking about what would carry through if the world became fundamentally different, or if some of these pressures and tensions really came to the surface?
1: My reflection is that in our first term in government, we were utterly focused on the idea that we were the first Labour government in 18 years, and if we screwed it up, we'd never be in government again, because people would just never... Uh, Actually, we planned very carefully for our first term, but we didn't, I think, understand the scale of some of the mountains that we needed to cross. So we talked about a low-carbon economy. It was a massively bigger enterprise than we realized. We talked about a more stable and inclusive form of capitalism, but we didn't really get to the guts of what that meant for corporate governance and the regulation of the financial uh, system. We talked about the onward march of the technological revolution, but we didn't really get to grips with what that meant for the future of work. We talked about reform of public services. In some ways, we did massive things, but the pressure on the tax base, I think we didn't come to terms with. And obviously, there's then the, the ultimate question, which is, how did we engage with the European Union? It's it's an enduring regret, to I think use your word from your question, that in the 13 years we were in government, I think that's fair, and certainly the 10 years, 1997, 2007, but actually up till 2010, Britain became a much bigger player in Europe than it had been. I mean, remember, it was the beef war in 1997. And for your younger listeners, they won't believe that Britain was in the middle of a beef war with the European Union, but it was. By 2010, we were really significant players. But as we became more powerful in Europe, Europe became less popular in the UK. It was almost a scissors effect on the curve there. Now, that was associated also with declining confidence in domestic institutions. It wasn't only European institutions. But the greatest question for the historians, I think, will be about the missed opportunities that that represented – Because undoubtedly, the end state is not just a Labour Party in a very different position, but it's also Britain in this fundamentally
0: different position because of the Brexit vote. David Miliband's really interesting book is called Rescue, Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time. It's published by Simon & Schuster. It's based on a TED Talk that you can watch, but there's a lot more in the book than there is in the talk. If you want to hear David and you happen to be in Cambridge, he'll be coming in a couple of weeks to the Cambridge Literary Festival. You can find out about that at the Literary Festival website. We will link to the talk and to other things as well at tppodcast underscore, so do follow us there and do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics.
1: Very nice. You've got a nice voice for radio, David. (laughs) <laughs> David Rumseman, famous for his outtakes. No, we you need that on Mike. let talk about damning with faint <laughs> praise. My God. <laughs>